Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. They're presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code DAN for a special offer when you sign up. That's code DAN only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Myron, it's nice to see you. I always appreciate talking to you, and thank you for taking uh, the time to do this long form because I've been, uh, you're so wildly impressive, and I don't know how you found the time to just write a new book, The 2% Way, How a Philosophy of Small Improvements Took Me to Oxford, the NFL, and Neurosurgery. But you have one of the most unique uh, athletic stories I've ever seen. It was hard enough to get to the top of football, and then you decided, no, let me try to do something a little bit harder and let me do neurosurgery. So I thank you for making the time for us. I think my admiration is clear. But what is it about you that chooses degree of difficulty, that chooses the hardest thing, at least in part because it's the hardest thing? (laughs) Well, thanks for having me, Dan. I I really appreciate it, and uh, I appreciate always talking to you for sure. Uh, I remember, I think last time we spoke, uh, I had my cousin Samari there with me, and... um, we're down in Miami, but, uh, you know, I, I, I've always sort of had these, uh, these dreams and goals, uh, that were conditioned and sort of, um, cultivated by my parents, uh, coming over, uh, over from the Bahamas. They wanted us to have role models in our lives that look like us, um, that use their intellect to galvanize a massive amount of people to move forward. Um, they were leaders, they were difference makers, they were game changers. They did some wonderful things. And so, People like Paul Robeson and W.B. Du Bois, Booker T. Washington. But when they put Ben Carson's story in front of me, I knew immediately that once I was done playing football, uh, whenever that was, um, that neurosurgery and studying the brain and trying to be a healer like him, a pediatric neurosurgeon in particular, uh, that would be the role for me. So I I definitely give credit to my parents for exposing me to individuals uh, who look like me to make me feel like it was achievable, that it was attainable. Uh, and it has been a blessing, a great ride so far. But how does that become the calling? How does that become the love? Uh, not football, not a sport that causes brain injury, but no, I want to study the brain. So, you know, I when, once Ben Carson uh, was introduced to me, I saw his story. I saw how he separated two conjoined twins from the occipital lobe and both of them lived. I did my own research and my own digging into this brain, uh, this, this central nervous system, uh, this part of our body that controls very distal parts of our hands, our fingers. Uh, One part of the brain controls production of speech. If you go back a little bit, maybe a centimeter or so behind, it controls how you, um, the fluidity of how the words come out. And then if you go a little bit south of that, a little bit um, posterior and south, you get to the taste receptors. And then you go a little bit more lateral, you get to the eye field. So all these things in the brain uh, that are just amazing. These functions, the synapses, the connectivity, uh, the communication between one hemisphere to the other, it just blew my mind away as a young person. And as I kept thinking about it and thinking about it, I said, well, you know, maybe I can still have a role in concussions, traumatic brain injury, uh, head trauma, head safety, head trauma safety. Um, once I'm done playing football and that can give me an avenue into a sport that I love while being a physician scientist, and, uh, and also somebody who loves the sport of football. So it, it all worked out. And I think that made the dream more realistic for me. And then it was just about the 2% way, putting the steps together, stacking up the days, winning the days, and getting into a residency, and eventually getting to Harvard, where I am now. But what's calling you there? Just simple curiosity? Like, I'm going to dedicate my life to the study of the brain. So curiosity, for sure. I think that was, that was very heavy. Uh, I think also the need. Uh, there was an absolute need to see representation. Um, you know, seeing Dr. Carson was not just his um, ability to do the work as a physician, but also was a representation of a black man in that in that position. I take that very seriously. Coming from a country of 90 to 95% black individuals in the Bahamas, and then walking through the halls of Mass General Hospital or Harvard and not seeing many providers that look like me, 
I said, well, this is, you know, this is something that I can do that can help save lives, change lives, and be a representative for the good that comes out of our communities and bodies that look like me. So I think it was multifaceted approach. Um, but I think once I got in to my first case, uh, which was, I think I was a medical student, uh, first year medical student at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia with a gentleman named Jay Storm. He let me literally take the, the forceps and resect a part of this tumor called a chordoma and just take it out piece by piece. The, the, the rush and the feeling of like, oh, this is it. You know, I've been studying this. I've been thinking about this. I've been putting it together theoretically. But now that I'm actually here and now that I'm actually feeling this tissue and taking it out, I said, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is where I belong. It was the same kind of adrenaline rush and pump that I got making a big hit on the football field or getting an interception or you know, playing in front of 85,000 fans at Doak Campbell Stadium or something like that. It was it was exhilarating. And I knew that if I can have those feelings every single day in my uh, profession for a long time, that I'd be a very happy man. What is the most energetically or physically or mentally draining day? Is it a day in residency studying medicine or is it the hardest football day? Definitely a day in residency uh, as a neurosurgeon. You start the day at four o'clock, 4.15 in the morning. Uh, you have to prepare um, you know, your list, essentially all the patients that are on your census uh, that are uh, they have some sort of neurosurgical disease burden. You have to know what happened the night before, talk to the nurses and make sure everything's okay overnight. You have to check their labs, make sure their scans, if they had any overnight, look okay. You have to prepare a plan for these these patients. You have to go see them physically uh, and then communicate that with the nurse, communicate that with my attending, my boss. Make sure the whole team understands what we're going to do for the day, the plans for each patient. And then after that, get into the operating room at around 7 o'clock or so and start the long day of working through cases in the spine, the brain, aneurysms, infections, tumors, hydrocephalus, spinal deformities, you know, lumbar herniations, cervical disc herniations, whatever the case may be. Get out of the sur sur surgeries around 5 or 6 p.m. Uh, and then you go see those same patients you saw in the morning again for afternoon or p.m. rounds. And then you communicate with uh, the night neurosurgeon who's going to come on and take over for you, or you are the night neurosurgeon and you spend 24 hours in the hospital. So it's straining, it's taxing. But I was telling this to somebody the other day, I, I don't look at the clock and say, oh man, I can't wait to get out of here. I look at the clock and say, I wish I had more time to continue to grind and continue to work because it's fun. It's exciting. It fires me up. And uh, these are patients that, that need our help. They don't come to Mass General Hospital uh, because, you know, they have very, very simple cases. They have the most complex pathologies uh, and they come to our hospital because we are sort of like the last stop. If it's, it's either us or Cleveland Clinic or Mayo Clinic, it's like one of the three you go to. And um, and so, you know, it's it's uh, it's amazing to be able to work with some of the, the best attendings, the wonderful nurses, and some really, really challenging cases that stimulate your mind. Football easy by comparison? Football is easier. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, you don't have a life at stake. So, um, you know, if you uh, you blow a coverage or you miss a tackle or you miss an assignment, uh, yeah, you may get pulled. You may get benched. You may get yelled at by uh, Mickey Andrews. Coach Bowden didn't really yell too much. He was he sort of just talked to you. And then when you heard him in that even tone, uh, his words pierced. But, um, yeah, you may you may hear it. But, um yeah, I, I think football was was certainly manageable, and um, but I would say the blessing with playing football, which I can't wait to allow my children. They're very young; they're under the age of two. But when they get older, to to play the sport because it it informed the way I do medicine now. It informed the way I practice. It informed my communication skills, the teamwork, the discipline, the focus, uh, coachability, being able to take criticism from my bosses, my attending, or more senior, more experienced neurosurgeons, and tell me that I need to move my hand this way. Or I need to look at you know a certain case this way, uh, and not feel like I'm being threatened or being assaulted <laughs> or anything like that. Literally, they're just trying to help me get better. And so, uh, football taught me to be strong and tough in that respect, and also to mitigate pressure. You know, I think that's really really important for neurosurgery. We do very very delicate cases, and although it's not the same as being backed up in the fourth quarter in the tight zone and the team has had some momentum and they're trying to score on you, and you need to cover the slot receiver before he catches a touchdown. But you still have to sort of relax yourself, take a couple breaths, take a couple heartbeats, and then go back to your fundamentals. And I do that a lot in, in neurosurgery and in my cases, and it's been helpful. Are you OCD about the discipline of being meticulous? Uh, yeah, I would say I'm, yes, I'm very passionate about it. Um, I'm very, uh, I, I make a concerted effort to, to 
um, be the best I possibly could be. And I write in the book, The 2% Way, about how my daddy used to tell me when I was younger and my brothers, uh, be so good that they can't deny you. I, I always remember him saying that. And I, I, I think through that, that phrase or that sentence, um, often when I'm preparing for a case, I want to prepare. I want to have everything in order. I want to have all the medical manufacturing device reps being there. I want to have all the neurosurgical equipment we need for this case there. I want to make sure I've talked through this case quite often. I speak to myself. Some people think I'm kind of crazy. I literally talk out loud and like so talk, talk through things at Starbucks and people are like, what is he doing? He's talking to himself. I'm literally talking through how I'm going to do this case and where I'm going to position myself because I know if I prepare myself and I'm ready that they can't deny me for something superficial and something artificial, like my color, my skin color or where I come from. Uh, he always told us to be, you know, so good that they can't deny you be four five, six, seven times better than the competition because your leash or your opportunities to fail uh, is not as long and you don't have that much grace as, as someone else. Uh, so you need to, uh, to be ready. And so that is, that has stuck with me ever since I was young and I, I continue to do it today. Weird question perhaps, but the act of neurosurgery is the delicate danger in how precious the brain is and how life, how precious life is. Is that part of the appeal that you're doing something that requires so much precision that it requires you to be a perfect human being at what it is that you're trying to apply because you're dealing with something as fragile and precious as the human brain. Absolutely. You, you hit it hundred percent. You know, I think if you, if you talk to 10 neurosurgeons, they would say, maybe nine of them would say the same thing and say that the, the fact that you are so close to the spinal cord, when you're, you know, uh, doing a transframinal lumbar interbody fusion, you're trying to increase the disc height and trying to realign the, the proper curvature of the spine. You're trying to make sure that uh, there's some stability and you relieve pain and relieve the pressure that's on the nerves, but you're so close to the spinal cord that if you touch it, you can literally paralyze someone or if you damage it, or if you take a blood vessel that's feeding that spinal cord, you can paralyze somebody. Um, same thing in the brain as well. You're so close to very important areas, eloquent parts of the brain, uh, that can leave neuro deficits or leave someone, uh, you know, very, um, you know, uncomfortable or in pain or uh, just not the same as they were prior to that case. And so you take that very seriously. Uh, you use and utilize all the resources around you to make sure that you are ready for that case. And it is a heightened level of pressure uh, in those cases. And to be able to mitigate that, manage it and allow that to fuel you forward. Uh, that has been uh, a blessing and uh, it's exciting to do. Uh, no offense to my colleagues in orthopedics who definitely, you know, fix bones and, you know, do hip and knee replacements. Uh, their surgeries are, are aggressive, they're tough and they're rough and they get it done, but it takes a little bit of brute. Ours, I think, have a little bit more finesse, a little bit more delicate uh, because we're working around areas that, um, you know, are essential to life and to have a meaningful life. So uh, I really enjoy it. It's fantastic. And having um, the ability, having the opportunity to work on patients who come to you because they have no other option and they say, this is our last stop. You know, hopefully, Dr. Roll, you and your team uh, could, could help us. It, it feels great to be able to stand in that position. When you see the awesome complexities of the human brain, does it make you believe in God? Uh, I already believed in God, but it makes me further believe in, in his grace and his power. Absolutely. You know, Dan, I, I think it's um, when you're at a place like Harvard, uh, I, there's a lot of people who work neck up and think very cerebral about the body and science and all these things. Uh, but for me, when I see something like um, Moya Moya, this one disease that you have in your brain, uh, young kids get it quite often. Adults can get it as well. It's essentially when one of the arteries that come from your neck and up to one of the hemispheres of your brain, it stops. It's like a dead end. And, you know, for, for whatever reason, growth factors don't continue. You just don't have a lot of perfusion in one half of your brain, basically, because this artery just stops. It's supposed to continue to go. And so when I see that and then you notice that the body says, ah, we're not getting oxygen and blood to different tissue. We need to create collaterals from the, the base of that artery that does have blood flow and then at least allow those collaterals to circulate into the brain tissue so that brain is not starved for oxygen, so that brain doesn't just die. And so to me, that gives me more proof that there is something divine, that there is a God who is looking out and finding ways around challenges and obstacles to keep us alive. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. The body is amazing. The brain is amazing. The spine is amazing. Uh, and we as you know, vessels are just here to try to 
cure and prevent and do everything we can uh, to, to really, you know, allow our, our outstanding bodies that have endured so much um, to continue on. What are the things, if you have to talk to somebody who doesn't know anything about the human brain, but you're trying to convey your fascination with the things that it can do, I'm sure you've got 50 things that you can answer to this question, but what are one or two or three that you're just talking to my audience and you're like, I can't believe that the human brain does this, or this part of the human brain is just such a marvel that I'm awed every time that I'm in this region? Yeah, I would say in the subthalamic nucleus, the STN, subthalamic nucleus, that's this one nucleus that's deep into the brain that patients who have Parkinson's disease uh, and, you know, typically Parkinson's disease, slow speech, mass facies, they typically have tremors. When we're operating on them, they're awake, right? So they're, the anesthesia does a great job of keeping them awake and we have their head open, their skull off, and we're putting these electrodes deep into their brain, into this nucleus, and then we can turn on some electri electrical power to stimulate that nucleus. And then you have them raise their hand, which typically you know, is tremulous at, at baseline, and then we turn up the electrical power even more, and then the tremor stops. And then you ask them to talk, and they're talking very fluently, and, and sort of their personality comes back. And it's just by stimulating this one nucleus, subthalamic nucleus, deep into the brain. It is phenomenal. I love seeing it. It's like real life fixing a problem like right then and there and then obviously we close up the head and close up the brain and then we have a battery that generates it, a pulse generator that sort of gives that electrical stimulation so that you know they don't have to walk around with their skull off so we can sort of give that um, that pulse that electricity at different times but it is a phenomenal thing the brain is great uh and when you can do something like that and see it happen in real time while the patient's awake in the operating room, it's a blessing. What do you regard as the greatest things or the most learning you've done about or around the brain? Because there's the meticulous specifics of the little details that teach you a million different things, but I imagine that this has taught you about life, about perspective, about how to live, about what to appreciate, uh, about what to dedicate yourself to uh, in the vessel while it's still roaming the earth. Absolutely. You know, I think what is the, the biggest thing that the brain uh, and this science that I'm in now uh, has really put on to me is how fragile we are uh, and how close we are to not having the life that uh, we've once enjoyed, not being able to speak to Dan Levitar, not being able to sit here comfortably uh, in my chair with my posture, not being able to control my blood pressure, my respiratory rate, or uh, my body temperature as I'm speaking to you and trying to, you know, elucidate my thoughts and producing speech and all these things. I've seen people who a day before uh, were at church, you know, went home, walking their dog, fell, slipped, huge brain bleed, and, and a massive amount of swelling, a lot of shift into their brain, and they're in our ICU, we do surgery, and then the next thing you know, we're having questions about what kind of life would they want to have. And the fact that uh, three days ago, they were just fine, they were normal, they were healthy, they were moving around and enjoying the world, and now they're not. And so it's something that we need to take very seriously. That's why you know, I am a staunch advocate for our athletes, not just football, but even soccer, women's soccer, when they're heading the ball, or wrestling, cheerleading, throwing cheerleaders up in the air and they fall or hit the ground, concussions, traumatic brain injury, microbleeds, microhemorrhaging, boxers who have swelling that leads to ALS. I, it just, it, 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 it fascinates me to, uh, to think through these complex diseases and to appreciate, you know, this brain that we have, this organ that allows us to have enjoyment in our life, but how it can be taken away, um, you know, in a day, uh, in a moment, uh, in one experience. And now everything changes. Your life changes, your family's life changes, the decisions around your life changes. Uh, it's a blessing that we're able to do what we do right now and have this fully functioning organ, this vessel, uh, to, you know, to enjoy what we have today. I don't know if this is accurate. I can't possibly pretend to know you well enough to know this, but it seems to me that you carry yourself with this knowledge in a way that has so much gratitude in it that I have a hard time imagining you even angry. This isn't to say that you don't do anger, but you seem to carry yourself with the perspective of a man who every step is taken with gratitude, who does not forget just how precious and amazing all this is because you have it in your fragile hands every time you're... You're, you're, you're dedicating your life to the study of it. Absolutely. I, I think being in this field now has given me a tremendous amount of patience and perspective. And uh, gratitude is a great word. It's absolutely accurate. Uh, younger Myron, 
uh, was not this way. I had a bit of a temper. I would get detentions. I would get uh, in the fights. I would um, steal from our local grocery store. Uh, I got in a fight so bad one time that it got me to court because uh, I beat up a kid for calling me the N-word and calling my mother the B-word. And uh, I was in Atlantic City Courthouse in South Jersey and standing there at 10 years old in front of this judge and trying to explain why I did what I did. And my mummy was so disappointed in me, thought we were going to get deported back to the Bahamas. Just a lot of stuff going on at that point. But thankfully, for by the grace of God, I just had to shake that young man's hand and tell him I was sorry and do some community service. And everything worked out. But now, as a 35-year-old with four kids under the age of two and a wife, and now being a neurosurgery resident, senior resident, uh, I have uh, definitely a profound perspective and a respect for life, uh, respect for you know my space, uh, my energy, and 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 knowing that um, you know we are we are uh, this is this is a blessing. This is a gift to have life. This is a gift to be here to do what we're doing, and our ability to use that gift to help other people, to uplift communities, um, to inspire, to motivate, to mentor. I think mentor is, mentoring is huge. I love doing it. I had many mentors and now I'm a mentor to several young people, men and women. It's, uh, it's what we're here for. It's the purpose. It's the calling for sure. I want to talk about the young you. I also want to talk about how adorable it is that as a 35-year-old man, as accomplished as you are, that you uh, still call your parents mommy and daddy is uh, is, is adorable given, given what is on your resume. But for those who don't know uh, who I'm talking to or more relevantly, your last name and how much pride there is in that last name, how much football there is in that last name, and your upbringing. Can you explain to the people what the role family name means? It means a lot, Dad. And, uh, you know, you, uh, you know Bahamians quite well. And um, it's, uh, it's a Bahamian name, and it comes from Exuma, Bahamas. Um, there was a slave owner named Lord John Roll, who was from Great Britain when they colonized uh, the Bahamas. And when slavery was abolished in 1838, 1836 or so, um, all the slaves in that plantation took his name. So you'll go to Exuma and will find Roll Hair Salon, Roll Barbershop, Roll Convenience Store, Roll Cookout, Roll Everything, Roll Town and Rollville, two different settlements in Exuma with our name. And so Antro Roll, Samari Roll, me, Brian Roll, Billy Roll was a great coach down in Miami, first coach in Santa Florida to win three state championships, three different schools. Uh, so the Roll name, we take a lot of pride in it. And thinking about coming from slavery, coming from bondage, coming from that terrible past, and now we want to flip, flip that to, to have people hear that name and, and believe in hope, believe in goodness, the positivity that we can inspire and inject into the world uh, based on our last name and based on our upbringing being Bahamian, uh, it means a whole lot. So it's something that I take very seriously. Uh, I enjoy it. And, um, you know, I, uh, I, I, my wife was a, is a Legrand. She comes from Columbus, Georgia. And uh, when we got married and she took my last name, she started to sort of like get into the vibe of like the Bahamianese of, uh, you know, that name and the pride in it. And she started to feel it herself. She said, something's different about like when I tell people my name, they, they sort of, you know, talk to me a little bit differently, especially when I'm in the Bahamas. So it's, um, it's great. We, we, we hold in high esteem for sure. How did the other roles feel about your uncommon decision to be like, ah, never mind about football. I'm going to go study the brain because it's also it's also a football family name. Like you're going through the entire history of it, but just your football history is an amazing football history. Yeah. Yeah. I think all of them, uh, you know, from Billy to Brian to Antro to Samara, I think all of them knew uh, we're all very close. And I think all of them knew that uh, I was very serious about school and academics. Um, you know, even choosing Florida State, I was between FSU, between Miami, Michigan, Oklahoma. These were a couple of my schools. And when I was talking to Trail and when I talked to Samari, you know, even though they went to both of those schools, they never pushed those schools on me. They were like, look, we know you're a student. We know you love education. You know, you got to choose the one that's best for you. Honestly, if you talk to Samari today, he would, he would tell you that, my, I thought that you were going to go to Michigan. I thought you were going to go with Lloyd Carr, go up there. They had um, Marlon Jackson, I think, was the DB at the time. They had some really good players. And he was like, I thought you were going to go there, man. And then when I chose FSU, it was uh, a little bit of a shock to him. But none, none of them uh, felt that the decision that I made to choose education, going to be a Rhodes Scholar, going over to Oxford, and, and then coming back to the NFL and get drafted much later to the Titans and all that stuff, and now going into neurosurgery, uh, none of them saw it as a surprise. They have been my supporters from day one. Uh, they love me. They have uh, supported me. 
and um, I appreciate uh, you know my family for for the for the help through through it all. A lot has changed over the years, but you know one thing that has the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? I pose this question to you. I don't know. You tell me right now. Okay, yeah, that's good. I like that. Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. The best thing for me about a nice Miller Lite is when I'm on the boat, I bring those tall... I, I don't even go for the, the regular 12-ounce cans. I hit the tall boy 16-ounce cans. They usually come in a four-packs wherever I buy beer. You put it in the cooler. You put some ice on top. The moment you take it out and the sun reflects off that gold top of Miller Lite with that white can, a beautiful sight out on the open ocean. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling, and it tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 96 calories per 12 ounces, fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What was happening when you were young that led to fights? You know, I, I, this, is, this is the the honest truth. I think people would tell me that if I did well in school and if I did well in sports, uh, that I, I'd be okay. And I took that message as just get good grades and score touchdowns and then everything else will take care of itself. So my behavior didn't have to match anything that I was doing in a classroom on the football field. Uh, so I just walked around with a very, very sort of, um, an attitude, an attitude, like you're not going to try me. Uh, you are not going to disrespect me. And if you do, I have the pedigree in the classroom and in the football field to say what I want. People are giving me the green light. At least that's what, how I took it. Plus I think coming from the Bahamas again, growing up, you know, in that space where our barbers are black. Our prime minister is black. Our lawyers, our doctors are black. Our teachers are black. The pastors are black. And then growing up in Galloway, New Jersey, moving to America, and then seeing this 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 part of the country that was very much not like that, where you didn't see anyone uh, pretty much in those positions that looked like me, there was a little bit of like frustration. I was like, well, I, I just don't feel like I belong. I feel different. And simmering underneath the surface, if you were going to try me or test me or challenge me. Uh, it didn't take a lot to spark that fire for me to do something. So when that young man uh, used that racial epithet and then called my mother uh, that derogatory word, um, I saw red. I didn't even think about my future. I literally just went after him and did what I did. And um, I, I feel like at that point, at 10 years old, seeing my mummy, who's typically very jovial and very energetic and very excitable and just like, you know, just all life, see that life sucked out of her and seeing a stoicism and a disappointment on her face that I've never seen before. That was the shock that I needed to say, okay, enough is enough. You cannot do this anymore. I gave my life to Christ after that. I joined our school band. I learned how to play the baritone saxophone. I was in our student government. I was in Fiddler on the Roof as a Russian white Jewish milkman with five white daughters. I was doing it all, trying to like separate myself from that previous like young, tempered Myron to now uh, a mature man to put away childish things and grow into who I ought to be in this country. What an interesting perspective, though, because a lot of people would understand what your rage was there, that you didn't like that the rage, you didn't like that someone to give over the power to someone, you felt childish attacking someone because they had deeply insulted you and you did not like looking back on that man as a peaceful, forgiving, Christian, adult, mature male and saying that's not the way you handle that. You prove them wrong by becoming a neurosurgeon and be better at them at football and everything. Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, <laughs> that may make sense at the time. I was, uh, I was like, no, I, I had to do something about this. You can, you, uh, you, you touched a couple hot buttons that, um, you know, that really will get me going. And, um, you know, my parents, they, they've, they sacrificed so much and their, their move from Nassau, their move from Exuma, uh, to start over new and a new country where no one 
you know, ate fried kunk, stew kunk, bowl kunk, crack kunk, all the kunk you love, peas and rice, guava duff. They like they weren't eating those things. They weren't involved in our culture. And now for their last pain, my mummy calls me her last pain. For last pain to, to put them in this situation, uh, it was very different. But I, I would say that was a learning moment for me. That was a pivot moment for me. That was a, okay, let's let's change what we're doing. Because honestly, if I kept on that track, I'd be in juvenile detention or somewhere else. And I would not be speaking to you right now, Dan. So uh, things had to change. And I'm glad they did. Glad well, they what, did. A, what an interesting perspective to have, though, as an adult, because you are seeing you're putting down your pride in the ego. Any athlete or any a whole lot of men would understand. Wait a minute. You've insulted my mother. You have made my mother crushed, and I kicked the shit out of you because you disrespected me. And I was rightly and I was rightly pissed off. But now I've brought my family shame because I'm I'm what I'm in handcuffs. I'm a cliche. I'm I'm what 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 was happening there that you decided this is going to be a pivotal moment for me to change the entirety of my life. Well, yeah, you know, it was it was definitely the shame. Uh, it was the the embarrassment, you know, to stand in front of this white judge with my Sunday's best suit on, uh, my clip on tie, and and talk to him about what I had done. Um, you know, my school teachers heard about it, so you know they were discussing it. You can hear them talking like in the back rooms, like about you know, oh, role is a uh, not you know not as nice a kid as you think he is. You know, he's got great grades, but you know his behavior is untoward. Like all these things. So that was that, that was rough, but I, I just kept going back to the fact that um, you know what my parents and others have sacrificed for me. That if I let this go by throwing my hands every time somebody calls me the N word or the B word, it won't be the last time that happens. I have to grow from this, and so this would this would certainly damage and um, prohibit me from excelling, from growing, from getting better. I've had moments now as a physician where patients have mistaken me for materials management or food service. I walk into the room with my scrubs on uh, and they say, I'm done with my food. I'm done. You can take it. And they shoo me away with their hand. Very dismissive. Uh, or, you know, hey, you can take me to CT scan in a little bit, but right now I got to do something. Don't don't talk to me right now. And I'm like, no, sir. I'm not here to transport you to imaging. I'm not here to take your food away. I'm here to take your brain tumor out. I'm part of the team that will do that. And then immediately it's like effusive apologies. Like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Oh, what's your name, Dr. Rowe? Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And at that point, if I was 10-year-old Myron, I would probably say something to him or do something. Uh, but now responsible Myron says, look, you're in this position right now. If you mess up, if you mess up at Harvard and you allow you know, your emotions of the past to sort of take over, they won't get another you in here. They will, they will be years before they try someone like you again. And so all the mentees that are coming up behind and, and want to be a neurosurgeon or want to be an orthopedic surgeon at National Hospital Harvard or whatever the case may be, uh, they might have a more difficult time because they said we, we went here and it didn't work. And then plus, I had another situation where there was a family member who called me the N-word right in front of me. I'm sitting with my, I write, I write about this in the book, I'm sitting with the nurse and the patient and the brother who's on the phone says, can you believe they're letting the N-word you know, operate on, you know, X, whatever the, the brother's name was. And the nurse looked at me and was like, I'm so sorry. She mouths that to me. I'm sorry. And I look at her and I just said, okay, you know, I could, I could say something. I could do something right now. Or, or the brother had a very, the, the patient had a very, very like complex surgery that I really, really wanted to do. I said, look, this is going to be a great training for me. I can go and, and take this tumor out of his temporal lobe and I can go resolve his issue, save his life. And when he wakes up from anesthesia, who's he going to see over top of him? He's going to see a black man who just saved his life. So maybe he changes from that. Maybe he grows from that. I haven't followed up with him <laughs> or the brother to know if that helped at all. But the perspective changed. The, the idea changed. The temperament changed. The patience changed. And if it didn't, if I kept 10-year-old Myron in my soul, then uh, it would have it been a bad day for sure. And you're carrying with you, I imagine, stuff like this. I don't know whether you still get underestimated daily or not, or how often uh, you have to shake off underestimation, but you are perpetually feeling the need to be rising above that underestimate, underestimation because you want to be a pioneering person who does for others what Ben Carson did for you by representing something that's possible? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I do hear and feel the subtle microaggressions. Uh, I do hear the doubt sometimes when I, you know, ask a team uh, to put a, a, an order in or to uh, to do something, you know, for a patient, you know, while I'm in the operating room and then 
have to answer the question four or five times because they're not sure if I know what I'm doing. But I'm like, yes, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm supposed to say. I know the orders that I'm supposed to be in. I know how this space is supposed to be taken care of. When my colleague does it, who's white, doesn't look like me, they ask, boom, it's done immediately. No question. No, we're going to do it. No question. Everything is fine. We'll do exactly what you say. But I have to justify myself and come with preparation. So that's why when I talk about being so good, they can't deny you. It's every layer. I have to be five, six layers deep into all these things. And my and and I don't, I don't look at it as a burden, frankly. I don't look at it as like, oh, this is too much. And let me compare my journey forward to my colleagues. I look at it as this is routine. This is what I've always had to do. And now I'm just doing it again, um, you know, at a different level. But uh, it's just a part of it. Oh, I'd go a step further. I don't think someone achieves like you unless you like. Okay, make this as hard as, as you possibly can and watch what I do. You're going to make it harder. It's going to be harder for me and watch. Watch how I achieve even though you've made it harder. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I, I enjoy that. Uh, I love that. I think that's incredibly important. Um, you know, I think the challenge of, you know, being, um, you know, being tried or being tested or being doubted uh, that just is, uh, that's, that's very exciting too. And, you know, it adds, you know, levels of complexity and levels of, um, uh, of intensity to an already very intense situation. So, uh, it's, it's really good. And, and being able to work under those conditions and environments, I think prepares me for doing anything in the operating room. Uh, obviously I still have ways to go with my technical skills and I'm still going to get better for sure. And I look forward to that. I'm humble enough to realize that there's some cases that you know, I can't do start to finish alone a lot that I can, but quite a few I cannot. Um, but it still is just, it's, it's exciting. And even honestly, Dan, even operating in different parts of the world too. Um, I, I've been to Zambia. I've spent six months in Africa working in Sub-Saharan Africa with this low resource setting and doing surgeries over there. I was back home in the Bahamas. I did surgeries in Montserrat and Antigua as well. All these different places that don't have what we have in Mass General. And then going into those environments that doesn't have that extra distraction or extra intensity to it, like I would in my normal setting, uh, it just, it felt very smooth. And so, um, you know, you train at a really difficult level and a real hard level uh, with the best surgeons and the best attendings in the world and some very tough situations. And then you go around the world and you operate in different settings and uh, you can see your, your talents so, sort of shine through and you can help patients that way too. Holy shit. So you're saying as hard as brain surgery is here, you're saying, and I also get excited if you throw some limitations of resources and environment around me where I don't have the same necessarily funding that I have in America. Yes, make that even harder. Make brain surgery even harder. Yes, I'd like that challenge as well. Well, it's, it's a creative, it's a creativity that you need to, you know, get. I, you just feel like, well, what can I do to solve this problem? And the problem may not just be, you know, equipment. The problem may be electricity that, that goes out. The problem may be oxygen support that doesn't, you know, really happen as much as you want it to during the case. The problem may be bed space after the case. The problem may be, you know, when I was in Africa, there were roaches in in the operating theater sometimes. So how do like it, it's yes, there's there's already a complexity in dealing with brain surgery and doing this very difficult, but this, this difficult task. But when you can step in and try to find answers to other solutions that will make that job that you do and that you love easier. Uh, it just, it feels, it feels good. It feels like you're a problem solver. It feels like you're a part of the team and you're part of the movement. You're part of the fixing the systemic gaps that exist in healthcare, especially in low and under-resourced settings. And so that was very exciting for me uh, to travel to different parts of the world this past year, partake in surgeries there and try to step in the way or at least fill the void uh, with my mind, with my solutions, with my creativity in different ways for, for some very vulnerable populations. Is any part of it the doing of it because it's so difficult, because it requires so much precision, because you're a balanced individual who carries himself with gratitude, is the act of opening someone's brain and working on it, is it something meditative for you where you talk about the controlled breathing, where you are so present in the moment that there is nothing else in life? And in some ways, it makes you one with God to be that close to the epicenter of how human beings exist. Yes, absolutely. And the, the wonder never leaves. And if it does leave, then you ought to move into something else. You know, when you open up someone's skull and you see the brain, you see this pink tissue that's in front of you, and you know sometimes it's disease, so it doesn't really look as healthy as as, as other times. Um, but there's a, there's a wonder, there's a respect there that you have uh, when you open up someone's spine and you see the spinal cord and you see all of its 
nerve roots sort of dangling down and coming out to, you know, innervate different parts of the body. It's like, man, it's a respect factor that you just see something so great. It looks so beautiful. There's, it's, it's something that we ought to cherish and respect, uh, and move with the, um, the diligence that it requires. Uh, and these patients definitely required of, of us. So yes, uh, the body and, and the part of the body we work on gives you those moments of feeling, you know, just like in this moment. Um, but at the end of the day, there's also a patient that expects you to do the job. So the wonder can't take over too, too much, uh, because you still have to complete the task and do the best you can. They expect it of you and their families do as well. Oh, I'm not talking about just the wonder though. I'm talking about where it becomes prayer for you and the doing of it, right? Where it becomes the, where it becomes the discipline of football. You're talking about breathing exercise. You're talking about pressure situations. You're talking about distilling life to its precious core and you not you know you can't be too odd you can't do too much wonder because life is at risk but yet still you feel like you've been allowed into this incredibly sacred space because you've devoted your life over to this small small thing that is the giant thing of the brain and life yeah absolutely no question you know and uh you're, you're right the um how we control ourselves and how we support ourselves in these moments i think help us and everyone's different right I, I know for myself what i love to do uh my body position has to be the way it is uh it, it, i have to be sort of standing up upright and i have to touch the patient if I, even if it's just my pinky you know just touching the patient just makes me feel somewhat like connected to that moment and, and when i position the patient that also calms me down. I can just touch the patient, position the patient before the case, and I feel you know more connected to that moment and feel like I'm now, quote unquote, in the zone. And that's a part of my 2% way process of getting ready uh, for a big task. It's, it's finding and identifying those small things uh, every single day and every single surgery that that gets me closer to uh, to this moment so I can perform at my optimum. Other people may have different ways they do it. My colleagues certainly do. Uh, but this has worked for me, and uh, it's been it's been uh, you know uh, a, a good routine for sure. Why did you write the book? Why was it important for you? You've got plenty going on, and you like I, for those who don't know your story, you were a Rhodes Scholar before you were drafted uh, into the NFL. Uh, but why? It doesn't seem like you have much spare time. It seems like even though you're living an inspired life, that there would be plenty of places to get tired. Why writing is hard? Why write the book? So I, I wrote the book uh, based on my, my wife actually encouraging me to do so. I was coming home from uh, re, uh, from from the hospital, and I typically call her when I leave the hospital. Right? Sometimes I've, I called her, and I was like leaving an operation, leaving the operating room, and then they call me back to do something, and I don't leave the hospital till three hours, so I'm not actually going home yet. When I was leaving the actual hospital, my foot was out of the the building. I gave her a call, and we started talking, and she says, "You know what, Myron? I think you should put your story on paper." And I was like, oh, I don't know. I'm in the doldrums of residency. It's dark. It's cold. Boston's cold. I'm not sure. And she was like, you know, people always come up to us when we're eating or they write us emails and say, you know, your story has inspired us. Your story has, your story has inspired me and my family. And I remember you saying how Ben Carson's book, Gifted Hands, inspired you to be a neurosurgeon. Maybe you can do that for someone else. And so my wife actually believed in me more than I believed in myself. And I started to put pen to paper and nine months later, um, with a literary agent and a, and a publisher on board, uh, we had this manuscript. And so this book is, is something that it talks through my story arc from the Bahamas to New Jersey, to Florida, to Tennessee, Pittsburgh, and now um, in Boston, Massachusetts. But in it, I talk a lot about the challenges that I faced through temp having a temper, being having anger issues when I was younger, feeling levels of uncertainty and doubt, feeling socially awkward in some setting, right? Like going down to Florida State with my teammates, with dreadlocks and gold teeth and drinking country, uh, eating country fried steak and drinking sweet tea, vastly different than my prep school upbringing in, in New Jersey at my boarding school. So thinking about those kind of issues, dealing with relational issues, like my wife and I were distant for a long time and trying to raise a family while we're not together physically, uh, is very difficult. So there's human experiences that I've had that people have on a day daily basis. And the 2% way, this process of taking small, consistent daily steps, winning each day and stacking those days so you can have an improvement a month from now, six months from now, a year from now. Uh, that really, I, I hope, can inspire and resonate with people and move people to a better version of themselves. The 2% way, how a philosophy of small improvements took me to Oxford, the NFL, and neurosurgery. Did I just hear 
this crazy motherfucker correctly that he said he wrote a book while doing the residency? Why did you just say that while doing a residency, which is harder than football in your spare time, you said, let me just jot some things down. Were you sleeping at all? What kind of crazy person are you? <laughs> yeah, I, well, that was a lot, man. Uh, yeah, man. Uh, it was um, it was something that, you know, I had a bit of a cheat. Right. So I wrote some stories down from the past and I had them like saved in a word document so I can just pull them and sort of think through those. But, you know, I, I would say I have a really wonderful wife and outstanding support staff, brothers, cousins, um, you know, friends who really help like block out some of the noise and and just keep me focused. Like If it's going to be at 30 minutes or an hour a day, just writing some things down, I can stay on pace and stay on beat and know that I have to, um, you know, to get some words on this paper down and then just staying consistent with it. That, that was really helpful. All the other stuff, you know, the things that could get in the way of, of that focus, I had some wonderful people sort of blocking that and buffering that for me. And so, uh, yeah, it was, um, it, it, on the outside, it seems like a lot, but for, for us, I think just the support system that I had to protect me in that moment. So I can put on things, put things on paper that, that were real, that were reflective, that were vulnerable, uh, and that hopefully inspires. Uh, it, all, it all worked out in the end. So when you hand the book to somebody, what are you proud of or what are you eager? Somebody you care about or somebody that you're looking to move with it? Like what's in it that you're that you're proud of conveying a message that, that you can hand over as a gift to them on? Yeah, no, I, I think the, the thing I'm probably most proud of uh, when handing this book to someone uh, would be the fact that this 2% way has such utility in in all things that we do, um, your personal life, your professional life, your spiritual life, your relational life, whatever it may be, uh, you can use this, this process to quiet down the noise and just focus every day on those small wins. And when you do have small wins, your limbic lobe, one of the six lobes in your brain actually does fire some neurotransmitters in the excitatory process to literally make you feel good about doing something. You don't have to compare your journey to someone else. You put yourself juxtaposed to someone else. You don't have to do that because that can make you depressed or feel like you're not doing enough or feel like you're not enough of a person. But if you just go small, small steps every day, you will grow. You'll continue to progress and move forward. And even if you don't hit the target of the goal that you want to reach or, or something that you want to attain, you're still much better now than you were a month ago or two months ago because you've made this move. And so I, I think that this process is... is um, is a way that has worked for me in high points in my life, low points in my life. I talk about all these things in the book, and I'm hoping that people come away feeling moved and charged and fired up about their own potential. You're a godly man. You're a hopeful man. You're an inspiring man. I am curious as a proud black man who has had to suffer any manner of indignity because of some of the stories you've told here and many of the ones that you haven't, as you've seen what's happened in this country over the last decade where the racism is so overt, it was at least it felt like better hidden before. Now it feels like it's just all out in the open. Um, your feeling of having to overachieve in the last 15 years of life over you know every obstacle that you've had to overachieve through and then looking up at your television every day or the newspaper and seeing that people are fighting over dumb race related stuff that does what in terms of your daily temperament, uh, and how much does it test your spirituality and your, your faith and your energy? Yeah, it's, it's very difficult to, to, uh, to see those images. We knew that was happening in the black communities, um, all the time, literally. Uh, and we were taught as young people, um, how to, put your hands on a steering wheel so they can see you don't move suddenly. If the cops are going to be around, um, you know, to wear your hat forward. So you don't look like a suspect. Cause they can always say you fit the description or something of that nature. Uh, that if you're going to date a woman in a, of a different race to make sure that her family likes you, uh, and, and that they're not going to, they don't have something against you so that they can use that because it'd be your word versus hers. And they're not going to believe you. I mean, all of these things we were taught as young people. Now you're starting to hear more about these stories come up as we're having these conversations about race relations. And and I don't have the solution for how to solve racism. And that's not, that's not your question you're asking. But I do believe that there's three levels to sort of chip away at racism. One is you 
have those people on the street, those rebel rousers, the, the Jesse Jacksons of the world, the Cornell West of the world, the Al Sharpton, you have the people that make the noise really get your attention. Like, what are we doing? Like, what, what's happening here? You know, let's call attention to this by making some noise about disrupting some things peacefully, you know, get into good trouble as, as uh, the late congressman said. And so think about thinking, thinking through that, right? The rebel rousers, then you need those individuals who are going to be infiltrators, right? You having more lawyers and more judges, more elected officials who look like us, or at least have black or brown interests at, at, at heart, right? And, and care about what happens in these communities all from the inside, changing laws and policies from the inside, working out. And then I think the third tier, which is often missed, but I'm glad that a lot of my colleagues are engaging in this, are the, the non-blacks, the allies, to come and use their privilege and their access and their voice and their money or whatever they can be, their visibility, to really, really call attention to things and be a true ally, not sit willfully ignorant on the sidelines and say, well, it's not happening to me, so it doesn't matter. But if you get in, engaged and you say, I want to learn about what's going on, I want to support what's going on, and I want to stand up for my black and brown brothers and sisters who sometimes can't stand up for themselves, that to me is like salute all day. That's what I love. And so I think there's a couple ways to fight it. We have a long way to go. It's not going to be fixed tomorrow, but it's something that keeps me encouraged and know that there, there, there could be forward movement uh, if we engage, uh, you know, in, in these kind of ways. How did you navigate? And I'll leave this as the last question. How did you navigate your um, being inspired by Ben Carson to seeing what and how he was used politically, uh, given that he was an inspiration to you by a party that didn't seem to care very much about race relations? It hurt me. You know, when I heard that Dr. Carson was, uh, running for office, uh, I immediately said, no, please don't. And whether you believe in what he believes in or not, I think fundamentally we're different from a political ideology standpoint. But put that aside, if you're in politics, there is mud that's that's thrown at you. There are things that are said about you. There are people that question you. There are people that really try to denigrate you on any side, on any political party. And so I did not want to see my hero be taken down that way. Um, I think I can't speak for him, but I believe that he probably felt that, you know, taking the next step from being a physician who inspires so many people to now public office, he might be able to influence generations even more. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, I'm not sure if it, 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 you know, it worked out as much as he would want it to. But to me, his ability in the operating room, in the hospital, as a pioneer in education, uh, as a leader in that respect, uh, that means a lot to me. His personal relationship with me and his wife, uh, that means a lot to me as well. He's a man of faith as well. So I, I truly believe in it. Um, and so I try my best to separate, you know, his political life from the human Ben Carson, the spiritual Ben Carson, the physician Ben Carson, and the mentor Ben Carson that he's been to me for uh, for the years that I've known him. A wildly impressive human being, Dr. Myron Roll. The new book, uh, The 2% Way, How a Philosophy of Small Improvements Took Me to Oxford, the NFL, and Neurosurgery. It is always a pleasure. I don't say that as, uh, as just interview platitude at the end. It is always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Dan. Likewise, likewise, absolutely. A lot has changed over the years, but you know one thing that has the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? I pose this question to you. I don't know. You tell me right now. Okay, yeah, that's good. I like that. Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. The best thing for me about a nice Miller Lite is when I'm on the boat, I bring those tall... I, I don't even go for the, the regular 12-ounce cans. I hit the tall boy 16-ounce cans. They usually come in a four-packs wherever I buy beer. You put it in the cooler. You put some ice on top. The moment you take it out, and the sun reflects off that gold top of Miller Lite with that white can. A beautiful sight out on the open ocean. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. And it tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com beach. Or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer.